from the words of the prophet Hosea from chapter 3. The Lord said to me, Go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethek of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way toward you. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and his blessings in the last days. The word of the Lord. Well, it's been about six months since this pandemic has started. And unfortunately, the pandemic has taken about 365,000 lives since it began around the world, with 102,000 in our nation alone. How do we counteract the effects of this coronavirus? You may have heard terms like vaccines and antibodies and serology tests thrown around. But for lay people like you and I, like, what do these mean? So I did a bit of research. I can share with you and nerd out a little bit. You know, vaccines are, uh, since it has started, they've discovered that COVID-19 comes into our body and our body isn't able to recognize it and fight it off. And even if people are able to get medical assistance and go to the hospital and are put onto ventilators to help them breathe, medical staff aren't actually doing anything to fight off the virus. They're just trying to keep people alive long enough so that their bodies can fight it off on their own. That's why we need vaccines. Vaccines are introductions of small doses of the virus into our bodies so that our bodies might recognize it and fight it off. But in our bodies, there's these things called antibodies, and you'll see a picture of it up on the screen here. Antibodies are protein strands in our blood that recognize foreign matter like bacteria or virus or foreign substances and identify them and so that our white blood cells can deal with them. That's what vaccines do, is trigger antibody production in our bodies. But there's another way that we can fight off viruses. It's through something called an antidote. An antidote is something that's external to our bodies that is introduced. It's like a medicine that fights off the effects of a foreign matter directly. So why this rudimentary science lesson to start off our message today? You know, last Sunday, we began a new series on the book of Hosea entitled Pursuing Love that looks at how God called Hosea to marry and start a family with Gomer as an image of God's faithful and loyal love to Israel. But you see, Gomer and Israel had a problem. It wasn't a virus. It wasn't a medically confirmed condition, but it was just as deadly to their well-being. Israel and Gomer had a problem called waywardness. You see, God had called his people to walk in partnership with God, but that 
failed ever since Adam and Eve, the very first parents, disobeyed God in the garden. But ever since then, God had a plan, as we heard uh, uh, Phyllis read for us in the story today, to rescue the world. He called Abraham and Abraham's family and his descendants, called the people of Israel, to be in partnership with God, to bear God's image in the world, to live and work in the world, to show the world what life could look like if people would walk in partnership with God. Several generations after Abraham, God set the Israelites free from Egypt and called Moses and gave him the terms of the partnership in what we call the covenant or more uh, as well known as the Ten Commandments. And these are the terms of engagement, the terms of the partnership that God's people were to have in relationship with the living God. But even with these terms of the partnership, Israel continued to walk away, to be unfaithful. They had wayward hearts. It's a problem that Gomer exemplified in, it, in her marriage to Hosea. It's a problem that Hosea, Israel had in walking with God. It's a problem that all of us suffer. How do we counteract the effects of this wayward heart? Well, in Hosea 3, we're going to see how God provides an antidote to this problem, this sickness of a wayward heart. In Hosea 3, Israel, Hosea describes Israel's heart problem. Their wayward heart was a constant disposition toward doubting God and God's faithfulness and goodness. Doubting God's purpose and meaning for them. Does that sound a bit familiar to you? Doubting God? Wanting what thinking other things can be provided to you? In Hosea chapter 3, verse 1, the second half of it, we're told that the Israelites thought they could turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. Sacred appetites. Their appetites were filled. We don't know what sacred raisin cakes are. Perhaps some cinnamon buns that the Baals made, the, the Canaanites made better than them. 3 verse 4, we're told that the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod, that's a religious garment, or household gods. What did their wayward hearts look like? All of their worship of the living God was tainted with Baalism, the predominant religion of that region. They were divided in their attention, in their relationship with God. They wanted God, but they also wanted these other things. It's something that we've all kind of learned to do. We're kind of in a Zoom meeting, but we're not in the Zoom meeting. And maybe you're doing that right now. You're in this YouTube stream, but not really in the YouTube stream. That's okay. Generations earlier, King David was meant to be Israel's king. But this northern kingdom of Israel pulled away for many centuries by not submitting to the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel here is where Hosea is ministering to, and they were characterized by pride and self-sufficiency and setting up their own set of rules and parallel worship methods rather than worshiping together with the kingdom of Judah. And this Distracted, divided, attend loyalty caught, spilled over in how they treated other people. Their kings, or one king after another, would kill off the predecessor in pursuit of power. Wealthy people would gain at the expense of the poor. 
As we learned in the opening chapters, Israel's wayward heart was illustrated in Hosea's marriage to Gomer. Gomer sought out other lovers for provisions. Her unfaithfulness to Hosea was a metaphor for how Israel had merged their faith in the living God with divided loyalties, with the cultural and religious practices of the surrounding culture, the Canaanite culture. This wayward human heart often doesn't look like blatant rebellion, though. It's often couched in pragmatism. It's, in some ways, the Israelites are saying, hey, they're it seems to work for our neighbors, so, and they're fine, so why can't it work for us? And God says to Israel in the previous chapter, in verse 5, it's coming up on the screen here, she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold. Does this sound like a big deal to you? They're like basic human needs. What is the big deal? We're just trying to live here, take care of our families, take care of ourselves. I mean, eating raisin cakes that go to another god is kind of like going to another bakery for our cinnamon buns, right? What's the big deal? On Hosea 4, in the following chapter, we're told about the priests. And there, Hosea says, The more priests there were, the more they sinned against me. They exchanged their glorious God for something disgraceful. They feed on the sins of my people and relish in their wickedness. God's, God called leaders to lead their people, but they had chosen someone else other than God. And the result of that was feeding on the sins of their people and relishing in their wickedness. God charged Israel's unfaithfulness as idolatry. The actions that they were doing weren't necessarily morally reprehensible by themselves. Their actions were probably even legal, according to legal terms. But their actions reflected who they trusted and who they valued most. Israel was supposed to be a kingdom of priests, bearing God's healing to the world around them and restoring people. But instead, God charges the priests of Israel as feeding on the sins of my people and delighting in their wickedness. Their failure to walk in partnership with God wasn't just impacting their relationship with God. It was impacting how they treated their neighbors. The Lord charges Israel's idolatry with their failure to treat, uh, to treat others justly. You see, idolatry and unfaithfulness to the living God aren't just personal and private convictions that don't affect people around us. When we fail to relate to God rightly, a shadow is cast over how we treat others. And a shadow is cast over how we live out our true purpose as human beings made in the image of God. We begin to treat others as uh, other people as objects to be used and mistreated. See, idolatry produces injustice. Or put it another way, wherever we see injustice, there is an idol right behind it. In Hosea 4, verse 1 and 2, God says, There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There is only cursing, lying, and murder, stealing, and adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. See, a broken relationship with God leads to a broken relationship with people. Idolatry in the place of God results in injustice towards others. Do we see that today in our world? 
idolatry is behind a white woman lying about a man, a black man threatening her when she's called out for walking her dog off leash in Central Park. Idolatry is behind a police officer kneeling on the neck of George Floyd for eight minutes, lynching him essentially while recording, recorded by people with his fellow officers standing beside him because likely he thought that he deserved to execute punishment for an alleged offense. Idolatry shows up when people destroy property and loot when, because they're so frustrated about systemic injustices around them. Idolatry shows up in a leader who fails to lead with compassion, with empathy, and with truth because he's more concerned about his polling numbers than the death of 100,000 people in our nation. Behind every injustice is an idol that falsely promises hope and freedom. Idolatry makes us want to be the writers of our own laws, the judge, the jury, and the sentencer of a punishment that we deem is worthy of whatever idol we have placed on the altar of worship. Idols of material wealth, idols of comforts, idols of privilege and convenience, idols of self-absorbed concern, idols of elitism in our race or our social class, our education, idols of perhaps even our theology and our social justice. But only one being in the universe has the right and the authority to be the writer of the law, to be the judge, to be the jury, and the sentencer. And that person is the living God of the universe. The problem of wayward hearts is a problem of idolatry. Waywardness is idolatry, not just a mistake. Waywardness is a failure to walk in partnership with the living God that demeans our purpose as God's image bearers, which leads to demeaning others as well. Idolatry and injustice may be easy to point out when they're on the news and when they pop up on our social media feed, but what idols would be revealed in the thoughts of our minds, in the actions and the secret actions that no one sees, that no one posts on a social media feed? What if it was your mind's browser history that was revealed? What kind of idols would we see there? The reality is waywardness and idolatry are conditions that we all test positive for, no matter how much we deny that we have it. What kind of vaccine can we get for this condition? The answer is none. There is no vaccine. We have no antibodies. We, what we need is an antidote for our, way, our waywardness. We need something outside of ourselves to counter the effect, counteract the effects of a wayward heart. And what is that antidote? That antidote is love, but a very unique kind of love. Last Sunday during the children's story, Rachel Trigo read for us about the, the, the parable of the prodigal son. And in that story, a young man spurns the love and care of his father. And he essentially says with his actions that this relationship is over. I want all the benefits of this relationship without the involvement of the relationship. 
Essentially, he says to his father, I want my inheritance now, the stuff that I'm supposed to get when you die, and I don't want you in my life anymore. And this young man does that. The father lets him go, and the young man squanders all of his wealth. And at the lowest point of his life, he realizes his waywardness and thinks, if only I go back to my father, at least I can become a servant in the household. I've lost my place as a son. But there, Jesus' parable illustrates this costly and crazy love of the father to not just receive the son back as a servant, but to restore him fully with the rights as a son. But the story here is a little different in Hosea. We don't see any remorse. There is no aha moment for Gomer. How does God command Hosea to fix the situation of an unfaithful partner? In Hosea 3, verse 1, the Lord says, Go and show your love to your wife again. Go and love her again. The solution to Gomer's unfaithfulness doesn't come from her repentance or from her moral uh, fortitude or from her wokeness or from her or for her re- uh, realization of guilt. The solution doesn't come from Hosea reasoning with her and pointing out her faults. He doesn't publicly shame her or wait for her to come back. Hosea doesn't even go back to her because he's still in love with her, which is a very modern association with love, uh, marriage, and relationships. There's nothing in Gomer that makes her worthy of a restored relationship. We don't get the sense from this text that Gomer wants to leave the relationship that she found herself in. And even if she did, she couldn't. Her faithfulness got her indebted to another man that requires Hosea to pay off the debt. Go and love her again. Verse 2, we're told that Hosea says, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethek of barley. Go and love her again. Pay her debt. This love is costly, but this love is crazy. It's really, really crazy. It doesn't make any sense to our progressively minded intuitions concerned with righting wrongs and injustices. And we may bristle a little bit at this association of God-ordained human trafficking, but we need to caution ourselves about unfairly imposing modern values on an ancient prophetic narrative. Take a step back for a moment and think of this, the craziness of the situation. For Hosea and for Gomer, old wounds have to be reopened in this restored relationship. There's trauma for her. There's trauma for him. Hosea risks having to be betrayed once again. And without all these tools that we now have for processing trauma or even identifying trauma, she's got this complicated past that she may still need to process and it might flare up again in their marriage. But Hosea goes to show his love to her while adultery is in progress. He has to go to the man with whom his wife is sleeping with and offer to redeem her back. What kind of love is this? Hosea captures the tension of God's love for God's people. God does not ease the pain of this relationship by compromising or by quitting or just forgetting things. God loves Israel despite their blatant unfaithfulness. In verse 1, God says, Go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred cinnamon buns. 
In the original text, love is spoken of four times in this opening verse. It gets translated as five in the NIV. Each reference to God's love, though, if you notice, is paired with the grating reality of Israel's love. God's love and Israel's unfaithful love. The full the, the solution to her uh, waywardness isn't antibodies in her blood or stimulating the production of antibodies in her blood with a vaccine. The solution to her wellness is an antidote of the willful love of God. This love of God that redeems and restores is costly. It's costly for God, but it also requires something from us. A restored relationship requires faithfulness and commitment from both partners. It requires a change from a wayward heart. You see, Homer comes back to, uh, Homer comes to, Hosea comes to, oh, not Homer, Hosea comes to Gomer, redeems her, and chooses to love her, inviting her back into the relationship. And he says to her, here is how you can respond and enjoy this relationship of love. In verse 3, he says, you are to live with me for many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way towards you. There's three things that characteristics here that Hosea is stating. One, he's affirming his commitment to care for her and to love her. Two, Hosea sets this condition of a restored relationship. She must not have any other divided attentions, divided loyalties, to have nothing to do with her sinful past with another man. And third, Hosea promises that he will again be her husband, restored in full relationship, full partnership. There's no mention here of punishment. There's no mention of shame or fear-based coercion. Simply live in response to this crazy, costly love that's been extended towards her. As Hosea asks of Gomer, God desires the same for Israel. God wants all the factors that led to Israel's waywardness to be removed. Their idols, their divided hearts. God's antidote towards our wayward hearts is a love that changes wayward hearts. God's love shows that our idols pale in comparison to the truth and the character of the living God. So our wayward hearts are no longer distracted by these pale promises offered by whatever idols might be before us. And when we respond to God's love, we also turn from these false idols that promise us false hope. You know, earlier on, I asked you a question to consider the kind of idols that might surface up, perhaps in the browser history of your mind, and your thoughts, and in your actions. Consider what kind of idols are revealed in the responses to the coronavirus, and people being told what they're supposed to do. Consider the kind of idols that are revealed in the tragic events of this past week, Idols of power and political advantage rooted in racial legacies. Idols of preserving wealth at the expense of concern for the safety of all. You know, God comes and says to Hosea, uh, God comes and says to us what God says to uh, Israel and what Hosea says to Gomer. You are to live with me for many days. Your lives are not to be formed and informed by any other God, by any other worldview, by any other ideology, be faithful to me and I will demonstrate my faithfulness to you that will go beyond anything you could ever imagine. 
That's God's commitment to you and to me. You know, 750 years after Hosea, there came another prophet, another priest, and another king. This king came to lead by serving. And this prophet, no, this priest came to heal by shedding his own blood. And this priest, uh, this prophet came to teach with words and with actions, but ultimately by giving up his last breath on the cross. This priest goes and atones and pays our debts with his own blood. And this prophet and priest and king is none other than Jesus, the son of the living God who approaches you and I, who are far away in our wayward hearts. We are indebted and held captive to disordered priorities and identities. He heals our wayward hearts of trauma he, and, and disordered attractions. And Jesus, the king, leads us to a life of true beauty, joy, and peace. We cannot overcome our wayward hearts ourselves apart from God. The antidote to our waywardness and idolatry can only be God and his love revealed in Christ Jesus. Here's the hope. No matter how far we run away from God, no matter how unfaithful we have been to him in the past or continue to be, no matter how messed up our world is, our culture, our society, in their abandonment of God, no matter how disordered and broken our lives are, nothing can stop God from loving us. And even when we don't deserve God's love because of our lack of faith, because of our skepticism, because of our waywardness, God still loves us. He loves each one of us exactly as we are, are. But even better, he loves us for who we are going to become. No one should ever question whether God loves them. The one question we should all consider, though, is how will we respond to this crazy, costly love of God? Will we respond in humility, in trust, and in repentance? Or will we receive, and will we receive this antidote of God's love fully that heals us? Or will our hearts remain drifting and divided towards idols that take away our humanity and the humanity of those around us? May you see the depth of God's great love pursuing you in Jesus, who comes to you with grace and truth. And may even, even more, may you enjoy that love by responding to that love with open hearts and with faithfulness to the only one and only God who remains ever faithful to you. Amen.